Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in Washington, D.C. I'm in today. Lee is out today, and I'm uh, uh, Eric is, is coming here, and he's been ably standing in for him. Right now, we're talking with Patrick Henningsen. He's a journal- journalist, and he's a founder of a great website that I go to daily, actually many times a day, 21stCenturyWire.com. All right. Where were we, Patrick? We were talking about, uh, oh, uh, basically, the the connections— uh, we'll get to Assange in a second, but the U.S.-U.K. Rela- relationship. And so it seems to me, I'll say this, it seems to me the U.S.-U.K. relationship to me is more about the elites of the two companies, co- countries working together to ensure that their economic and, and you know, quote, strategic military interests are um, taken care of. And it's not about the people of the country at all. What do you think? Uh, no, it isn't. But you, but you need to you need to bring the people of the country together under some sort of uh, united banner, some sort of uh, shared values, or sort of shared cause or common purpose, as they say, uh, in order to make this work. So you still need to sell it to the people. This is this is the important part. But you're right to point out, uh, Garland, that the two financial uh, centers in Wall Street and the City of London are this is a cash cow. This is the sort of casino with the unlimited printing press that makes this global empire function and this gives it the ability to do things that other countries uh, don't necessarily do. They can sort of uh, inflate the currency almost indefinitely, at least they have been doing for a very long time, at least for the last uh, decade or two with quantitative easing, uh, allowing them to sort of uh, print money and do things, run budget deficits uh, in the trillions of dollars. I mean, not every country uh, is able to do that, sort of function as a functioning bankrupt country. Uh, and then extend, still extend their empire, uh, even though on paper they're absolutely broke. So, or, and should be in receivership, quite frankly. In fact, they are in receivership, Garland, to the very entities that you just mentioned uh, earlier. So, that's it's a peculiar situation, actually, when you think about it. Well, it's, I always say, you know, we're twenty-two trillion dollars in debt, and we're telling Venezuela that their economic model doesn't work. They ain't twenty-two trillion dollars in debt. We are. And we're claiming to be, you know, economically sound, uh, fiscally sound. A quick, a qu- one more question before we get this, Sanchez. because definitely want to get to that. But one more question, and that is, in my research the last couple of days about what's happening as far as Brexit, it appears to me, and tell me if I'm evaluating this wrong from far off, it appears to me that the, 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 the political and economic e- elites in, 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 in Europe, I mean, excuse me, in England, have decided that they're willing to melt everything down. They're willing to blow the political system up. They're willing to allow the conservative party to disintegrate. It doesn't matter. They're willing to take any hit to stay in the EU, to stop Brexit. uh, Something that I never thought. I didn't think they were, you know, they'd become almost suicide bombers where they're going to blow up their own parties or anything. Is my evaluation wrong? Uh, it, it certainly looks like that, uh, Garland. I do believe there's, there's actually a split. Uh, there's a genuine bona fide split uh, in the elite uh, in this country. Uh, there's a big pro-EU remain contingent. These will, these would be called Europhiles uh, for years before, and the leading Europhiles, of course, being people like Tony Blair, uh, Nick Clegg, former leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, but also on the Tory party, Theresa May was a committed Europhile, as was Boris Johnson uh, up until two months before the referendum in June 
2016, and that's something that people should should note as well. So what is the genuine Brexiteer status, or did they become Brexiteers through this process? Because what's happened is that the public opinion, uh, people thought the public opinion would shift back towards Remain with all of the palava and the stalling that's been going on for the last two years uh, and the mismanagement, as it seems, by the uh, Prime Minister Theresa May. But what happened was the opposite, Garland. I think public opinion, at least based on the European elections last week, the results show that public opinion has swung in the other direction and with a bigger majority for Brexit than before. And so this sort of defies all the pundits, uh, defies a lot of the pollsters and the mainstream journalists that have been saying the opposite for the last couple of years. I think there's a genuine split. And the genuine split is also being played on by the United States, by the Trump administration. There are people that want to go all in with America on a bilateral trade deal. And what, where would this benefit, Garland? It would benefit if there was some sort of major economic calamity which struck the world economy. And the, let's say the euro got hit particularly bad, uh, then the U.K., uh, by being out of Europe in that sense and being having a tighter uh, economic relationship with North America might be able to weather that storm while Europe goes into a heap of Euro ashes. Uh, so that would be one thing looking forward. You know, is, is Britain just battening down the hatches for an economic calamity to come, which a lot of people are saying is inevitable? Yep. Is this what's really happening? Is this a temporary measure? And then they'll rejoin Europe later. I hear a lot of people in Westminster saying that when the toxicity subsides, that there would be an opportunity to uh, rejoin Europe and meet maybe even on a closer relationship than before. So I but I don't think there's an absolute consensus, Garland. I, I really think there's a genuine split here, even among what so called elites. So there's a battle of interests and as we know, at that level it's like the mafia. So it's, it's bigger than the mafia. There's different competing mafias within industrial and financial sectors and interests and so forth. So uh it's difficult really to see where where things are heading right now, but uh, certainly there's there's parties that will uh, stand to take advantage of whichever way the result goes. It's interesting you mentioned that because you know I used to teach about um, organized crime and a lot of you know during the during prohibition when that we had the rise of the you know mafia in New York and throughout the U.S. Um, the a number of the mafia figures actually said that they 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 modeled themselves and their empires after the robber barons, after the you know the the the, the Erie Railroad people and the Rockefellers and it's all of those people. So it's interesting that you say that now because when the mafia rose, they were like, "Hey, we're going to be just like those guys." It, you know, it's the same dynamic. Um, so, uh, uh, Julian Assange, we need a, an update from you. I know you're covering, doing a, a lot of covering uh, of the Assange um, uh, 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 issues, the, the, the Julian Assange story um, on 21st Century Rewire. Um, how much do we know about what's going on with his health issue? We've got his health issue. We've got um, uh, what's going on in Sweden now. So update us. What's, what's, what's the Assange uh, stories that we need to know? Well, you're, you're probably appraised on, on, on the status of his health uh, and physical, mental conditions. You probably— uh, Yeah, but, I, but we've got a lot of listeners here in Washington, D.C. that may not be. So fill them in. Okay. So the U.N. the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Nils Melzer, released a report, a damning report last week, that basically called out uh, the U.K., but not only the U.K., but the, the U.S., Sweden, and Ecuador uh, for— 
abusing, essentially abusing Julian Assange, and not not just the physical abuse he's receiving now, but sort of the political uh, uh, gang tackling, if you will, of these four countries and the humiliation and the defamation campaign that's been running against them. That's a, a big, big uh, watermark because the UN doesn't normally uh, weigh in on the political side, but apparently it's just so glaringly obvious in this case that this UN rapporteur couldn't ignore it. And I think that had a massive impact, so much so that the exclusive interviews that he gave to the BBC and some of the other mainstream networks, I believe Sky News was one of them, uh, they, they didn't air them uh, on on their media platforms. So they gave it, they offered exclusives and didn't air the exclusives, and you just see snippets of it here and there on social media. And so he made a big deal about this on his social media accounts and then took directly to media himself. Uh, and so I think that was the right thing to do. Uh, but in terms of the Sweden uh, situation right now, uh, Sweden has done something that shocked a few people uh, just yesterday. Uh, Sweden has ruled uh, that Julian Assange does not need to be extradited to Sweden for questioning. You have to remember he hasn't been charged with anything, despite what you read and see in the, in the press. So he hasn't been charged. He's only wanted for questioning. That was the same back in 2011 as it is today. Uh, so that changes things greatly. It means that they can come and interview him here or do it remotely. If they want to question him for this third attempt at raising this investigation, raising this case in Sweden. Uh, so that's, that's a great uh, victory for Assange's defense in that they recognize that he has rights. They recognize that they can't just extradite him to for questioning. He hasn't been charged with anything yet. And so this is really, it could be a good thing. Now, it could be a bad thing as well because he might receive better physical treatment if he's incarcerated in Sweden somehow uh, than if he was uh, in the U.K. He doesn't seem to be getting very good treatment at all here, uh, and that was reflected in the U.N. report. But uh, the other important thing to note is the European arrest warrant that he was always wanted for. Uh, we found out now that that was actually... Uh, filed, uh, uh, I guess you could say, illegally in Sweden. Uh, that was supposed to have been issued by a judge back in 2011, and it wasn't. It was issued by a prosecutor. And so this is also one of the reasons why uh, this particular decision might have been made this week, uh, because then th th if they did uh, push for the uh, extradition, the European arrest warrant, then they would have had to review the previous one. That means the bail-skipping charge that he is actually incarcerated right now in the U.K. was basically based on a bogus, a fraudulent uh, European arrest warrant. So well, let me ask you this. It sounds as though his lawyers can attack that. I would think his lawyers can go after that right now and start arguing, I mean, that the uh, initial the uh, the initial warrant was improper, or, you know, improper, so everything else is fruits of the poison tree, right? Yes, absolutely, and they are arguing that, and I believe this has also been uh, uh, instructive in getting the result that they have with regards to Sweden. And a lot of people might think that uh, Sweden might be a softer touch uh, for extradition to the U.S. Uh, in that uh, Sweden, it's easier for the U.S. Washington to bear its weight on a smaller country like Sweden to sort of hand over and ship Assange to uh, Virginia. Uh, other than the U.K., the U.K. has to uphold international norms, and it can't be seen uh, to be a complete puppet of the United States, at least on a legal sense, uh, to ignore human rights. And there's already an admission by many people in this country that Assange won't be getting a fair trial, uh, that this is a politicized uh, set of indictments that were handed down a couple of weeks ago to him. So, you know, it's not looking good for the U.K. They're in a kind of political quandary right now. 
so this latest uh, decision with Sweden, I think this can be marked down in the column of good for Julian Assange. It's, it's certainly the first bit of uh, uh, change, sea change we've seen the momentum since this is all sort of kicked off when he was uh, taken out of the Ecuadorian embassy uh, back in early April. So it's definitely a, r a ray of light of sorts, but we'll see. We'll see how, how things pan out in the next couple of weeks. There's an extradition hearing next week. I think it's June the 12th uh, at Westminster Magistrates Court. So that's regarding the U.S. extradition. So, of course, his legal team's mounting uh, as strong a defense as they can, uh, talking about his human rights, his rights as a journalist, and also the provenance of the charges by the U.S. as well, arguing those two. Well, I tend to think, and you know, uh, and, you know, and, you know. You, I guess you're not supposed to say this, but I don't have any better sense. Here's the way I think. You know, if they bring him here, they've got some issues. They've got some First Amendment issues. Um, the ACLU is probably going to be all over him. I don't know if you know it. I'm actually on the National Board of Directors for the ACLU, but they're going to have to deal with that. They, and, and here's the bottom line. There's a good possibility they could lose. So they could bring Assange here, and they could charge him, and they could lose. And I tend to think, let's just say, they would prefer if the problem went away before he ever got here. They would prefer that he meet an untimely demise. And I know you're not supposed to, you know, you haven't said it. People don't say it that much in the mainstream media, but I'll say it right now. I think they want him dead. I'm not saying they're killing him. I'm not saying they're not. Am I being, you know, hyperbolic in thinking that? Well, look, Garland, it would be terribly convenient for the British government to offload this whole problem onto Sweden right now, and it turns out this week that they can't do that at the moment. They, they would like to offload it directly uh, to the United States, of course, but then that would look terribly bad uh, on the British government and the British state as a whole uh, as things stand. And then with the United States, once they got Assange, what, where can they offload him to? They can't. So you're right. It would be a lot easier for all parties concerned if he wasn't a problem anymore. So the question is, where, where is the straw uh, to break the camel's back in this sort of three-way scenario? So if he goes to the U.S., I agree with you, Garland. The ACLU is fired up. Yep. There's a number of other uh, advocacy groups that are fired up. There's legal people uh, on this. This has become a big topic of discussion. Well, they, they, and it puts the major, the big, you know, basically the, 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 the so-called papers of record, the, the Washington Post and the New York Times, that as of now are nothing but stenographers for power. They're nothing but mouthpieces uh, uh, for the government. But it puts them in a jam. Because if basically they've got to take the position of power, but if the position of power wins, they lose. Because as I see it, you know, if you look at the Ellsberg Pentagon papers, the decision was made that these papers could publish things that were classified and things that were bought from the government. But the legal decision was never made whether or not the government could prosecute them afterwards. The government never just went after anyone. You could have it kind of, you know, uh, uh, now in, you know, through judicial pre precedent, of course, not through law, but through judicial precedent that the government can prosecute them. So now What's the good of being able to print this stuff if the court rules that, sure, you can print it and the government can prosecute you afterwards? So this could mess things up. So I think it would put their 
The people that give them their power are the New York Times, the Washington Post, the mainstream media. That's who keeps them in power. And it would put them in a jam. And I and I and I think there's probably people there saying to the government, don't don't put us in this. Don't don't you know, don't back us in this corner because it's going to hurt both us and you, because let's face it, in my opinion, they're all working together. What say you? No, this is way this is about as close to the bone as you're going to get, Garland, uh, with regards to the intersection between national security and the U.S. Constitution. We're talking about the First Amendment, and specifically we're talking about freedom of the press. And the United States is, is unique, and it's only, only one of the only countries uh, ever to, uh, if, if not ever, to mention freedom of the press. It's explicitly mentioned uh, in the First Amendment. So this is a foundational pillar of U.S. society. So this is about as close to the bone as you're going to get. Now, the press is, has to, to step back, and no matter how loyal they are to the security state and the war machine, uh, they, if, by, by going stepping over that line, which is what this uh, Department of Justice is attempting to do, uh, it's going to radically transform the character of the United States as a country, fundamentally. And I'm not exaggerating at all there. And I think that is what's the dawning on many people, even the, the most ardent critics and enemies of Julian Assange, is even dawning on them, the Rachel Maddows of the world and so forth, that they're realizing, wow, maybe uh, we have a serious fundamental problem here. Maybe this is much more important and bigger uh, than chasing the phantom uh, Russian ghosts. Well, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, uh, Professor Stephen Cohen, he writes for The Nation, um, and uh, you know, I'm watching a video of him the other day, and he's basically, he's been saying for a while that this whole Russiagate thing is, you know, one of the most dangerous things ever to happen to the United States, and, and, and it's a danger to our security and the security of a lot of people. And, and I think from the perspective of, you know, nuclear war and those kind of things, yeah. But when we look at what's happened with censorship, Online, the Googles, the the Twitters, the deplatforming. When we just look at the um, the freedom of speech, the freedom of expression, you know, before you even get to the part of we'll all be nuked and fried, which is certainly no picnic. But if in the unlikely event that we do survive this thing, um, we'll be pretty much living in an Orwellian society if the people that are pushing these kind of things have their way. I think that's the other part of Russiagate that isn't discussed. Yeah, well, nothing's discussed about it in the mainstream media, but, but, but a big part of it that isn't discussed is the effect on uh, enough, the effect on, on, our, on our freedoms. And fu- the, 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 this uh, Assange gate, you know, I was going to put gate to everything, Assange gate could be the big one that, 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 that pushes, um, that creates an environment where people who are currently working together, the government, the media, et cetera, ha- finally kind of have to bump heads a little bit, finally have to have a, you know, as we say in, in American culture, the come to Jesus moment where they where they got to decide where they're going to, what, what, you know, what direction they're going to take. Uh, uh, what do you think? Yeah, no, it's, it, the big fear is that the Julian Assange case is being used by those institutions and by those parties within institutions that have authoritarian tendencies. In other words, whenever they see an opportunity, whether it's 9-11, uh, whether it's the Iraq war, uh, whether it's this this incident right here, whether it's Russiagate, just use that to ramp up uh, uh, tighter regulations to sort of restrict rights, to push things like the Patriot Act and so forth. And use, so they would use Julian Assange now to sort of ramp up 
authoritarian power and give the U.S. a universal jurisdiction globally uh, in order to pursue journalists or anybody they consider a whistleblower who's damaging uh, national security or embarrassing the United States. And certainly that's an end run that a lot of authoritarian governments would love to have, because once you have that power and that precedent set and you've got international cooperation, in other words, the U.S., Britain, and their special relationship, plus the other countries and hangers-on who will sort of comply with that, like Ecuador in return for a $4 billion IMF payoff. Um, and that's how business is going to be run globally in the future. That's essentially a global government with Washington at the center. It's an, an unofficial uh, shadow government, if you will, maybe a mafia, as you described earlier. So, But it, it, that's the big fear here, is that they're using the Assange case, and they'll actually go for it. But in going for it, they're going to butt heads, like you said, God. Yep. And ultimately, here's the, the great irony, and that is that— if Trump, if the Trump administration got their way with the Assange thing and they were able to prosecute him for journalism, the very people, the Washington Post, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, the New York Times, he could use those powers to go after them. He could take them out, the very people who have been working to further the, 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 the globalist neocon agenda. It could backfire on them. We'll be back. we got two more hours. I want to thank Patrick Henningsen. He's got a great website. It's 21stCenturyWire.com, one of my favorite. we got two more hours. Oh, my gosh. John Kiriakou, Caleb Mopin, and Mark Sloboda. Two more hours. You're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. <laughs> 